Amen. You can be seated and good morning, everybody. And we're in Matthew chapter six. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're in church. You should have a Bible, right? <laughs> we have plenty of them on the window seal. Don't leave home or go leave here without one. Um, so Chad, come on up, man. I, I want you to help me with something. All right. So do you guys know Chad? Dude, people know you, man. Y'all like Chad? That didn't seem as enthusiastic. Wow. Come on guys. This is Chad. All right. Thank you. So Chad's going to help me with something. All right. So I just want you to do what I'm telling you to do. First, I want you to stick your hands out like straight. Like, there you go. Keep the elbows in. All right. And then wait, you might want to slump down just a little bit. All right. Nope. Like move your tail forward. There you go. And there, keep your chin up. All right. Keep your chin up and your mouth closed. You can do it. All right. Then I want you to raise your knees. All right. Now, if you can put your, put your hands like between your knees. All right. There you go. All right. Are you ready? Okay. And on three, we're going to stand up. One, two, three. Well done. Well, thank you, man. Then you go sit down. That's what it's like to preach on prayer. Because what you just experienced was me teaching someone how to ski for the very first time. And if you were in a lake, then that experience would have had your full attention. In fact, you would have probably asked me questions. Wait, wait, wait. Before you hit go, I'm supposed to do what? And here's what's crazy is if we hit go and you did the, the forward face plant, and we circled back around and I'd say, okay, listen to me, you would go, yes. Tell me everything. You've got my full attention. But let me tell you something. Preaching on prayer when no one is in the lake of prayer is like teaching somebody to ski on a stage where there's no water. If you're not praying or if you're not attempting to pray or make prayer part of your life, what I'm about to talk about for the next 20 minutes is going to be worthless to you. Literally, it would be like me describing how to get up on skis when you never plan on skiing. So here's a question I have for you as we get started. Are you ready? Thank you. Because let me tell you something that's true about you. If you don't know Jesus, man, you are missing out on what this life is all about. He made it. He created it. It's for him and it's to him. If you know Jesus, let me tell you what Peter says that's true about you. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, For by these his great and his precious promises, his magnificent promises, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world. In other words, because of God's promises through his son Jesus Christ, we are participants with the divine nature of God. Wait a minute. You are a, a participant with the divine nature of God. What does that mean? Well, in, in about a week or so, we're going down to the beach with our whole family. And I will take my six-year-old grandson into the holy temple of all six-year-olds. It's called the Sugar Shack. Have any of y'all ever been there? I mean, it literally is that. It is a shack that has nothing in it but sugar. It's like every kind of candy you could possibly imagine 
is in this 800 square foot shack. And I mean, everything. Has anybody, y'all been there? No? Some of you? Wow. <clears throat> so there, there's this thing called vacation. And I know <laughs> you leave work and you go someplace fun at the beach and you walk in, it's got an ice cream counter and then it's got candy everywhere. And when he walks in, he's going to be looking at two things, trying to at the same time, the candy and me. <clears throat> because he's going to want to know, oh, that's like gummy roaches. And he's looking at him. Yes, I want to eat that. I want to eat that. And he's looking at me. Can I, can I, can I, can I? And he's not walking in wondering, did I save enough money to buy money in the candy shack or the sugar shack? He's just wondering, I got grandpa with me. Does he have enough money to meet my desires? That's not prayer. That's not participating with the divine nature. Participating in the divine nature is walking into Sugar Shack and looking behind the counter. And, and your grandpa didn't walk in with you. He's behind the counter and he owns the place and he goes, welcome home. All that I have is yours. What? That's the divine nature. That all the blessings, all the sufferings, even the worst tragedies you could ever possibly imagine are filtered through the sugary grace of Jesus. And he's inviting us into his divine nature. So we've been studying the Lord's Prayer to try to understand how do we wake ourselves up to that? Like, how do I live in that reality? So it starts with our Father. We kind of get that. We talked about that. You know, holy is your name, that your name is other, which is outrageous to think about because when he converts us from being dead to alive, he calls us holy, which means we're a part of the holy, which means heaven is incomplete with us being a part of it because we are now part of the holy. He talks about your kingdom come, like change me, let your kingdom come into me and your will be done as it's done in heaven. Help me to want what you want. And we've come to this line today, give us today our daily bread. You heard that before? Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if we put you in a small group and we'd say, what does that mean? A lot of you would say, well, I don't know. I mean, it means basically God provide for my needs today. Like, give me what I'm going to need today. Like, we think about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. You know, I need, I need air, I need food, I need water, I need shelter, I need clothing, like the basic necessities of life. God, today will you give me what I need to live, bread. And I would talk about how bread and this time was the essential staple of the diet and they would eat bread to survive and Jesus, would you just give me the bread of life? And this is where I would do the pastor thing where I'd kind of shame you for what you really want. You know, that Jesus doesn't promise to give you what you want. He promises to give you what you need. Forget the sugar shack. No, we're in the broccoli shack now, you know, that you shouldn't want all that sugary stuff. That stuff's not good for you anyway. Jesus doesn't want stuff that's not good for you. All he wants is what's healthy for you. And so then I'll tell you, you know, like when your kids are like, I don't want broccoli, I want pizza. And the mom goes, and my mom actually did this. She goes, there are children children starving in Africa who would love to eat that broccoli stew. We called it shame parenting. Very effective. Used it with my own kids. 
This is where I tell you that this prayer is about shrinking your desires and, and raising your dependency and that life with Jesus is actually learning how to live life in a way that nobody wants to live their life that way. That we want to live to be responsible. We want to live to do the right thing. We want to live to be thankful. We want to live to be good people. Just good people. The problem with that is the Bible just kind of messes that theory up. Because when you read the Bible, the Bible seems to care a lot about the sugar shack. It really does. Listen to this. This is in Psalm 37. This is really in the Bible. It says, take the light in the Lord. Take the light in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, whatever you think that means... Whatever you think the very minimum is, what he's saying is, if you come to the Lord, he is going to awaken your desires. He's going to wake you up. In fact, scripture teaches that delight actually leads to more delight. Enjoyment actually leads to more enjoyment. Freedom, whew, freedom actually leads to a lot more freedom. St. Augustine, this is one of our original theologians. He actually said, and get this, whoa, write this over the door of your parents' church. He said, love God and go do whatever you want. Uh-oh. So let's unpack it. What is this passage about then? If it's not about that, what is it? Well, it's a really interesting passage of scripture. Give us this day our daily bread. Because when we start looking at this passage in the original language, okay, we're going to have to geek out here. All right, Alex, you're going to have to help me. All right, we're going to the original Greek. He's a Greek. He's my Greek guy. <laughs> Trust me, he is. When you go to that, the word daily is a Greek word, epiusius. And this word epiusius, it's nowhere in the Bible. This is the only place it's in the entire Bible. But it gets weirder than that. It's nowhere found in any Greek text of any Greek writing that we have ever discovered. It's so foreign to the Greek language and to the Bible, it's almost if Matthew just made this word up like a kid does when he walks into Sugar Shack. Fabulescent. I'm not kidding you. Like, if you go back to Origen, Origen was one of the theologians that lived about 200 years after Christ rose from the dead. He even said, now get it, he lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Like, this guy spoke Greek for a living. Like, he, he was not just a Greek scholar, he spoke Greek, all right? And this is the, the, the epicenter of knowledge at that time. Here's what he said about this word. I've never heard anybody use this word. I've never seen anybody write this word. I have no context in anything I've ever read that would give me understanding what that word is about. So what do we do with it? We just slap some word on it. So let's study it a little bit because I think what we're going to find is there's actually a whole different meaning to give us this day our daily bread than what you thought. And I think it's going to help us today on our journey. Well, most theologians would say this is probably a word about time. That, you know, it's a, it's a 
word that kind of dictates, like, give us daily. This is our daily bread. Uh, So most theologians would interpret it as the word daily. The problem we have with that is why is Matthew saying, give us this day our daily bread? It's like he's saying it twice. And it doesn't seem to make sense that he's repeating himself. So some theologians would say, yes, this is a word about time, but it's about future time. And so the prayer is actually, give us this day our bread for tomorrow. That what it possibly could mean is that it's tomorrow's bread that we're praying for. And we could make a case for this from Scripture. If you go to Exodus chapter 16, there's a story of the Israelites had been set free from slavery from the uh, Egyptians. And, and they're in the desert, and they're starving, and so God brought them bread. Maybe you've read this story. It's manna from heaven. And every morning, the bread would descend down on uh, the ground, and people were commanded to go out and collect what they needed. Um, and they made sure, hey, don't collect more than what you're going to eat today because it would rot at night. So they had to collect it for the day. And so some would say that what they prayed for is we already have today's bread. What we pray for is tomorrow's bread. Would you continue the bread for tomorrow? Possibly. Some says that maybe this isn't so much about time as it is about quantity. That what it's really talking about is give us enough bread to keep us alive today. Like, give us this day enough bread so that we're going to live. Don't give beyond our needs, but also don't give under our needs. And you could make a case for that. In Proverbs chapter 30, it says, two things I ask you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and do dishonor and to dishonor the name of my God. Maybe. Now, if we go back, there's actually uh, a translation of Scripture. It's called the Old Syriac Translation. It's actually one of the earliest uh, translations that we have in the Greek New Testament. And they actually interpret it a little differently. And let me read you the exact interpretation. It says, Amen, bread today give us. Sounds like Yoda, doesn't it? Amen. I can't do it. I'm sorry. Somebody, that would have been great, right? That and a backflip. If I'd have done that, you would have left today going, I'm never coming back. No. Uh, Amen today, bread today, give us. Give us today the bread that doesn't run out. Another way of thinking about this translation is give us the endless bread or give us the bread that is eternal. Think about it with me. Why would we pray, or why would Jesus want us to pray for endless, everlasting bread? What is he actually saying? Is it possible that what Jesus is saying is, here's what I want you to pray. Give me the bread that I will never run out of. Give me that substance and provision that will never run short. Maybe, and this is what I think the Lord is doing here. I think the Lord is putting his finger on the number one enemy of your life. After pastoring for a lot of years, I can tell you right now, what I'm about to talk about is the number one thing that keeps believers from living in the divine nature. 
It's the number one thing that begins to destroy our lives. It's the number one thing that shrinks our lives and makes our lives small. It's the number one thing that deals this death blow and brings toxic poison into our lives to where we're not living life to the full as Jesus claimed in John 10.10. We're actually living something very different. And it's what I've seen countless people leave the church, leave the faith, and not want to be a part of anything about Jesus ever again because of this one issue. Think about it. What does tomorrow bring? What is it about tomorrow that has captivated us so much? Fear. I'm afraid of tomorrow. You kidding me? Almost all my fears live in tomorrow. All my fears about something that could possibly happen or a thing's going to happen or I'm afraid is going to happen. Almost all my fears are about something that's not happening yet, but I believe could happen in the future. And what is the future? Tomorrow. Because tomorrow is uncontrollable. Tomorrow is ruled by the fates. Tomorrow is a storm. Tomorrow is completely outside my ability to actually manage. Think about it. My fear of tomorrow is, do you have enough to face what's coming tomorrow? Do you? Are you enough to face what's going to come tomorrow? Well, you say, well, what's coming tomorrow? Well, anything could come tomorrow. You could lose your job tomorrow. That's possible. People lose their jobs all the time. Or that deal that you're counting on could fall through. Or that bonus that you thought you were going to get, that it doesn't come through. Your kids could get sick tomorrow. Kids get sick all the time, and not just with an ear infection. Your kids could get something that is scary, scary sick. Happens to kids all the time. That could happen tomorrow. Do you know that the economy could crash tomorrow? It's crashed before. It has. The market could crash. Do you know the pandemic could come back tomorrow? It could come back. Did anybody predict five years ago that we were going to go through what we went through with, with corona? What if disaster hit? You know, I was watching the news the other night, and they were interviewing a woman that was standing in front of a pile of sticks down in Texas because a tornado had come through. This is what she said. I always saw this on TV, and I was convinced it would never happen to me. And then she turned around, and she goes, but look. And I was watching that going, I feel the same way you did. I do. I feel the same way. I don't think a tornado is going to hit my house, but it could. What if war happens? Wars happen. What if depression falls on you? Have you ever heard of people waking up and they're depressed? Could that happen to you tomorrow? What about that addiction that you've kept at bay, that nobody knows about, that finally raises up and grabs you by the neck? Could that happen tomorrow? Yeah, it could happen. Or that thing that you think is not an addiction and then becomes an addiction and starts to choke you out. Or what about that affair that you're thinking about having? Could it happen tomorrow? Or that affair that's already happened, but will it be found out tomorrow? Like, it could happen. That happens. It happens every day. We all hear stories about it. Somebody could run a traffic light tomorrow and change your life forever. Is that true? I know we don't want to say it, do we? It's true. 
If Jesus is calling us to join the freedom song, what he's calling us to is to leave fear behind. What if this whole passage is, give me the bread that's everlasting so that I can live my life without fear? See, we think, we think control will calm our fears or abundance will calm our fears. It doesn't. It's a lie. The only thing that will calm our fears is confidence. Confidence in the one who is greater than my fears. Let me explain. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul is talking to his young Padawan, his disciple, and he's going, hey, Timothy, remember, just remember this. I want to remind you to stir up the gifts of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. In other words, Timothy, do you remember the gifts that God gave you? You remember those gifts? Stir them up, stir them up. Do you know you have gifts? Yes? Okay, church, come on. If, you're, if you know Christ, you have gifts. Timothy's not an isolated incident, all right? You have gifts. Stir them up, stir them up. Why? Because listen to this. There is something that is choking out your ability to stir up the gifts of God in your life. What's choking it out? For God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. And if you don't know that, fear has got you in that chokehold. MMA, you're in the corner and it's choking you out. And he says, no, you've not been given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of power. You've been given a spirit of love and of sound mind. Matthew says that in chapter 6, verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. What is Jesus saying? What is Paul saying to Timothy? Fear is an enemy that is waging war against the very thing that God is bringing into your life. So, and some of you have multi-generational fears, man. You got stuff that go back like three generations, like your grandparents' fears, your parents' fears, your fears. I grew up in a neighborhood where, you know, we didn't have phones that we carried. We had phones. It wasn't like, you know, 200 years ago. You know, we just Morse coded one another. See you after school. Sorry, my horse is lame. It wasn't that old, all right? But what we did do is we go, hey, we had our meeting spots. We had the basketball court, you know. We had, you know, the wood fort in the back of the neighborhood. But we also had uh, what we called the chain tree. And it was this old tree in our neighborhood that was probably maybe 100 years old. But probably 50 years ago, somebody wrapped around it this chain with these big, like, links on it. And that tree, over the 50 years, instead of that chain breaking, that tree began to grow around that tree. And it deformed the tree and actually began to choke the tree, and it was killing the tree. It's like many of us. Fear has been wrapped around by generational sin. Sin has been wrapped around because we intentionally decided to pick it up. We thought it would be a great little necklace to wear around our necks. And then our lives begin to grow around it and it deforms our lives and it keeps us from power, from love and a sound mind. And we wonder where is Jesus and why doesn't Christianity work? So let's try to identify your fear. Are you ready? Are you afraid? Okay. We're almost done. This is Lisa Rankin. She's an author and a physician, and I love kind of this, uh, this list that she helps us to identify what fear looks like in our lives because it doesn't look like you might think. In fact, it's very sneaky, and it gets into our lives and begins to poison our lives. 
The first thing she says is you find yourself striving in vain for an impossible to achieve standard of perfection. When you're afraid of criticism, failure, or rejection, you do anything to try to become perfect. Of course, the mask of perfection also separates you from what you most want, real intimacy, real love, and real acceptance for your true self. Good Lord. Is it possible that fear has driven all your success? That the very thing that the world is applauding is actually the chain around the tree of your life choking you out? Is it possible that when that happens, even the success that you achieve by your near perfection, and some of you are really close to perfection, I can tell you, standing up here, I'm like, you're doing great, right? Is actually killing you. Number two, you settle for less than your dreams. When you're afraid to take risk and go for what you really want, you convince yourself that you're less than juicy. Okay, I love that, I gotta tell you. She said that your less than juicy life is as good as it gets. When fear runs the show, you forget how to dream. Oh, no. You settle. It's devastating. Participate with the divine. We are crazy dreamers. Fear wants to choke it out. Number three, you say yes when you mean no. Oh, no. Yes. No. Wait. Yes. When you're afraid to disappoint people or get rejected, if you don't say yes, you fall into fear-based, people-pleasing, self-sacrificing behavior that leads to resentment. And what is resentment? It rots your bones. Scripture. Go look up resentment in Proverbs. It is not good. There's no chemo that you can take for resentment. It begins to devour you from the inside out. Number four, you say no when you mean yes. When you're afraid, you're unlikely to take risk. You feel like you feel the yearning to start your own business or take the bucket list trip or have a baby or take an art class, but you'll say no because you're afraid to fail afraid to succeed, afraid to get rejected, afraid to stir things up, afraid to get out of your comfort zone. And I want you to know right now, if you love your comfort zone, there ain't no Jesus in the comfort zone. He don't live there. He's on the high seas and he's calling us to that place. Fear will never let us leave that room. Are we getting close with any of you? Okay, number five. You numb yourself. Well, wait a minute. Okay, we might want to skip this one. <laughs> Woo, too close to home. You numb yourself with food, alcohol, technology, or excessive busyness. I read that too fast, didn't I? Let me read it slower. You numb yourself. You numb yourself. Why? Because the pain of fear, when you don't deal with it, is so painful. Like, have you ever come to the end of your day and you're so restless that you got to pick up your phone? Or you're so restless and you ink inside that you got to pour yourself another drink? Or you're so restless that you got to do something like eat another plate of spaghetti? Like something that you're forcing into this body instead of stopping and going, I am terrified with my life. 
I am racked with fear. But instead of acknowledging your fear, what do we acknowledge? Excess. I love number six, because it's not me at all. And I love pointing out your failures and not mine. <laughs> Ask Renee, my wife. Yeah. I'm better at acknowledging and seeing quickly the spirits move to her sin and not my own. But you procrastinate a lot when you're afraid of putting yourself in the arena because of fear of failure, success, uncertainty, judgment, criticism, or rejection. You tend to stand on the sidelines where you feel safer. You want to participate with the divine? It's good, but it ain't safe. And number seven, you struggle to make decisions. When you're afraid you avoid making the decision, your soul knows you need to make. I, you know, I got, I, I got to jump ahead, okay? You can go look her up and you can read the rest of them. But the last one's important because I, I really believe this is true. When you live in fear, when fear is in your life, you get sick physically. Fear isn't just an uncomfortable emotion that holds you back from following your dreams. It can also trigger stress response in the body that puts you at risk of disease and makes it hard for the body to heal itself. It's true. God hasn't just made you a physical being. He's also made you a spiritual being, an emotional being. So when we pray this prayer, is Jesus shouting, people of God, turn your back on fear. Lord, give us the bread that is evermore. And what is the bread that's evermore? Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You will never thirst. So what does that mean? How do I do that? How do I come to Jesus and experience the bread that is forevermore? Well, I need another volunteer. Tim, come on up, man. Yes. Tim's thinking we will never sit this close to the front ever again. <clears throat> Okay, I'm just going to illustrate it. Okay, Tim, uh, do you guys know Tim? Dude, I like this shirt, man. It's really nice. It feels good, too. I wish you... You smell so good. All right. Uh, Tim, uh, you have a family, right? I do. And um, a wife? Yes. And um, you still have a job? I do. Okay, he's, he's employed. All right. And a home? That's right. Okay. Let me tell you something about this guy, okay? He has a big life, a big life, a lot of responsibilities, and that means that we all know something about him because you all know something about yourself. His life is like this, right? Oh, yeah. There are times where he's up and he's like, you know, I'm going to conquer the world. There's times where he's down at the bottom. He's like, what am I doing? We know that. And how old are you now? 33. 33, so young. Wow. <laughs> I remember when I was 33, there were no phones and we rode horses everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> 33 years. And guess what? Because he's lived this long, we know that his life has done this too. Where am I going? Is this the right way? Do I go this way? We know there have probably been countless times where he's like, is this God's will for my life? Should I marry her? Should I go to this school? Should I do this? Should I take this job? We know this because we know this about ourselves. And guess what? That's not going to stop. You know, in 10 years when he's my age, you know, 
Come on, go with me. All right. There's just going to be more of that. More of that. Because life is hard. And at every turn, life is challenging. And Tim, be afraid. Be afraid. Aren't you afraid? Come on, be afraid. And this is what Jesus says. Tim, pray. Pray what? Jesus, give me the bread that is forevermore. And what is he praying? Jesus, give me you. And this is what Jesus does when we pray that prayer. Face this way, all right? Because I want them to see. Jesus, we think, steps in front of us and goes, get behind me, Tim. I, because he goes before us and comes behind us, right? And I will face the future for you. I will be the warrior. I will fight your battles. The battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. And he's going to fight for us. Fight for us. Stay with me, Tim. Stay with me, Tim. Come on, Tim. All right. <laughs> That's not what Jesus does. He does some of that. But let me tell you what Jesus does. Jesus turns his back on the future because it doesn't scare him a bit. And what he does is he says, give me your hands, Tim. Keep your eyes on me. Easy. Easy. Don't be afraid. Take a step. Easy, Tim. Just take a step. Just take a step. Just stay with me, man. Keep your eyes on me. Future, don't worry about it. That's behind me. I got it. I'm not even worried about it. Just stay with me. When? Right now. Tomorrow? Tomorrow never comes, guys. Tomorrow will be today. He's saying right now. Right now. Thank you, Tim. You know how much that stinks? You know, I'm pouring my heart out, bro. You just stand here and people applaud for you. That's unbelievable. <laughs> okay, so here's what we're about to do. We're about to have the worship team come in and we're going to do that. We're going to take our fears. We're, we're going to take the hand of Jesus and we're going to go, Jesus, you are the bread forevermore. Would you take my hand now? And would you walk me away from my fear into power, love, and a sound mind? Power, love, and a sound mind, because I want to participate with the divine nature of God. Take my hand and let me see your face. So this song that we're about to sing really isn't a song, it's a prayer. And what I want to encourage you to do is, would you, would you allow yourself to lean in just now? Don't worry about what it's going to look like in an hour or two days or whatever. This may be the last moment of your life. I don't know. But you've got it now. And let this song be your prayer. And come to the Jesus who is stretching out his hand to you, going, trust me. Trust me, the life I have for you is greater than the fear life that you've been living. Lord, it's, uh, it's really easy. I feel like I have a doctorate in fear that... It's easy for us to live in fear. Everybody's living in fear. And it seems impossible to live a life without fear. Or to know the role that fear has in my life. Not to control me, but to even lead me back to you. What's hard, Father, is to know what to do with these deep desires in me. To participate with something greater than myself. To grab your hands and to see your face. And to actually leave my fears by the wayside. Because I want to believe, Father, that you gifted me like you gifted Timothy. I want to believe that my life has purpose that's beyond myself. A purpose that brings me joy, even in the midst of suffering. So, Lord, would you allow us grace now? Holy Spirit, would you stir our hearts to come to you in this song and turn this song into a prayer.
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.